Okay, we're going to keep going forward with our Employing God's Gifts series. Today is Chapter 8, uh, Seven Gifts of the Spirit, Part B. So we're Chapter 7 and Chapter 8 are on the Seven Gifts of the Spirit. If you'll look at Roman numeral 3 on your uh, outline, you'll see the uh, 13 chapter titles. Today is Chapter 8. So in the first one, we got oriented by saying, that the purpose of, of studying about spiritual gifts is not some narcissistic, self-actualizing, uh, I've got a calling and I'm going to be this important person or whatever, but it's to begin to identify how God wants you to serve. Uh, the highest thing you can be called to be in God's kingdom is a servant. And uh, so... Uh, you want to uh, start to, I, I never read the book, but there's a popular Christian book called Improve Your Serve, and there's other Christian books about servant leadership, and thank God that that's been an emphasis among many Christians. Frankly, we have my pastor Ray Nethery here, and um, the number one reason I chose to get involved with the Alliance for Renewal Churches 11 years ago was because of the example so many of their leaders set of servant leadership. So... Um, today we're continuing to look at the, uh, the, uh, gifts the ministry gifts or the servant gifts, which are spoken of in first Corinthians 12, five. If we remember first Corinthians 12, four, five, and six lists three categories of gifts, each of which is relating, uh, the word, the word, uh, diaresis, um, which is usually translated varieties or diversities, uh, tells uh, is a, it lets us know that each of these is distributed from a different particular person of the Trinity and the uh, we looked at the gifts of motivation which are talked about in verse 6 now we're looking at the gifts of uh, service in verse 5 and then actually next week we will start looking at the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit or the charismatas which are listed in verse 4 so t today let's get right into it uh, last week uh, you'll require re re you'll remember that uh, you hear a lot about the fivefold ministry, and there's a couple of things I want you to be aware of. Number one, I actually look at it as the is the sevenfold ministry because I combine it with the list of First Corinthians twelve twenty eight and twenty nine, which is obviously ministry gifts and charismata gifts uh, sliced together in 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 uh, in a great at the as an en the ending of a great chapter about the diversity of gifts in general in the body of Christ. But uh, Paul lists helps and administrations, and I think those were the first ministry gifts. And God intends uh, many people in the body of Christ to start their, their service by having the gift of helps. And um, we talked about what that's all about, what that means last week. Uh, I want us to also be clear that these gifts are not offices, we talked uh, in the previous week in chapter 6, we talked about New Testament offices of priest, elder, deacon, and um, there, we didn't, there was one other word I really wanted to look at, father, but we didn't get a chance to, to look at that. And one of the things I'm trying to help us do is understand we want to use these in our, the model that God is building here in a very New Testament and biblical way, but we also want to understand that the different ch church traditions around us use them in different ways, 
And we're not on some crusade to correct anybody how they use them. We do want to understand how different groups use them so we can appreciate their tradition and serve them and, and be one with them. It's not, it's not at all important that we uh, try to straighten out anyone's thinking about how any of these words get used except our own thinking for our own internal purposes. I, I want to be very clear about that. New Testament gifts are descriptive. They're not prescriptive. And that's a very important concept to think about. Um, really, uh, we talked about offices. Let me finish that thought before I talk about descriptive, prescriptive. When the, the one, I just want to be, be clear that in chapter 6, we made clear that the word priest involves every believer in the New Testament. Okay, That's an office that you have if you're in Christ. You are a priest of the Most High God, and Christ fulfilled all of the all of the aspects of the Levitical priesthood, the, the priesthood according to Melchizedek, and he is our great high priest, and we are privileged to, to be priest of God, and we can all know the Lord from the least to the greatest, and we are all to study and teach the law of God in our homes. We are all called to be ministers and mediators of the presence of God to the earth around us. Every New Testament believer is a priest. And um, then in it, then we looked at the word elders, and we looked at two word, Greek words for elders, episkopos, which can mean overseer, and presbyteros, which can mean elder or overseer. They're used interchangeably throughout the New Testament, but they're always used plural in every local congregation. And the primary qualifications are, are more character than they are Bible college degrees and, and what's, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, being able to teach... Is, uh, is an aspect of that, but um, it's, not, uh, it's not the foundational or primary part of, of it at, at all. So, although it is important. All right, so last week we looked at helps. Last week we looked at administration, and last week we looked at teachers. I do want to, so in, re in reviewing that, I do want to... Um, remind us that there's three kinds of discipleship teaching in the New Testament. What happens today is most discipleship is done by parachurch groups, primarily high school and college ministries. Most people who think they need to be discipled, or, or most churches that think someone needs to be discipled, focus that in high school and college students. It is, tends to be done by parachurch groups, not the churches. In the New Testament, it was a it's a uh, primary function of the church. The church is to have many shepherds, many teachers, many disciplers. And uh, everybody should par be partaking of that. And the, what happens for the most part where there is any kind of discipleship uh, programs in our culture, the focus tends to be on informational discipleship. And that's one of the three. Informational discipleship is important. But frankly, informational discipleship can be accomplished by pointing people to the right kinds of books and having theology classes and, and good teaching and all that kind of stuff, but it's not adequate. Um, Christ, Paul, all the people you see discipling others in the New Testament also did formational discipleship, which admonishes, encourages, strengthens, and builds character. You know, the goal is that you would be formed complete in Christ. 
And impartation is, is so important. When Paul, you know, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. Now that's impartational discipleship. Uh, if you really know what makes a man motivated, what, what makes him tick, what, what his passions in God are, and, and so forth, um, that's impartation, zeal, vision, fear of God, core values, uh, transferring the mantle or spirit, all these kind of things are part of impartational discipleship. And you see that in the ministries of Moses and Joshua, Elijah with Elisha, Christ with the 12, Paul with Timothy and Titus, and so forth. It's so important that we go beyond informational discipling and, and do formational and impartational discipling. And to do that, you have to have relationship. Jesus appointed the 12, Mark 4, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to teach. But we, we just don't stop long enough to, to think about that phrase. He appointed the 12 that they might be with him. What Paul said is, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Paul actually goes so far as to talk about the different things in his life, and he says, if you practice the things I practice, the God of peace will dwell with you. You're ready to start leading people to Christ and you're ready to start helping in the ministry when you can actually say, hey, just look how I live, and, and if you live that way, Christ will dwell with you. You'll be blessed. Your, your life will be filled with the presence of God, and God will bless every aspect of your life. That's uh, called leadership instead of pointership. So, all right. Um, last week, we kind of ran out of time before we got to shepherds. I didn't have room to put it on on. Uh, chapter eight's outline. So if you have a chapter seven outline, I'm actually at the, at the end of chapter seven here. Uh, the word shepherds uh, is the Greek word poimen. It's translated pastors in most of our English translations in Ephesians 4.11, such as the English Standard Version, the Young's Literal Translation, Wycliffe, uh, the Complete Jewish Bible, or or what have you. However, in uh, in a few translations, uh, or I'm sorry, those are the, the ones, English Standard Version, Young's Literal, Wycliffe, and, and the Complete Jewish Bible are the ones who translate it shepherd. And it really should be translated shepherd. Uh, it appears 16 other times in the New Testament. In the King James, it's, it's, it's past, pastor only in Ephesians 4. Now, there's different theories about how that came to be. The most cynical and, you know, people who uh, tend to be conspiracy theorists, <laughs> tend to think, think that it was translated pastor on purpose to sort of halt the progress of the Reformation so people wouldn't think more New Testament-like in terms of their views of church leadership. I'm not so sure it was that sinister of a thing. There's no particular written evidence anywhere of that or anything like that. I will say that the word pastor etymologically comes from shepherd, and I think it was just uh, translated pastor to can kind of fit in with what people understood in their day and so forth. The problem with the word pastor versus shepherd is this, and it, it really isn't going to correct, be corrected just by arguing for one translation or another. It's, it's going to be corrected by understanding. So this is, this is an important point. A sh uh, the word shepherd, poimain, the word pastor, whatever, 
all words have a denotative meaning and a connotative meaning. Okay, this is very important when you're reading your Bible to think about when you're engaging words. A denotative meaning is what it technically means. It's the proper definition. The connotative meaning is what people think it means, what the kinds of feelings and associations it has in the culture around you. The, so the problem simply is this, is way back before King James times, going back into the Middle Ages, we tend, uh, a, a kind of a tradition developed where a pastor is somewhat of a hired gun. Uh, he's a, a hireling, and he's a professional guy who does professional ministerial services in the church. But a shepherd is someone who knows the sheep by name, who leads them out, who leads them in, who helps them find green pastures, who protects them from the wolves, who combs their wool and gets the, gets the thorns out and so forth. A shepherd is a father. A shepherd is a dear term. It's, a per, it's more personable. And my understanding is, is this, that all elders of New Testament churches should be shepherds. Most places where you see a plurality of elder system, the elders tend to be business guys who hire and fire pastors from outside and so forth. Now, sometimes churches go through shakeups and that has to be done. But ideally in the New Testament model, you train and develop shepherds from within the church and raise them up to take care of the sheep. And some of those shepherds become designated with an office called elder, presbyter, bishop, whatever you want to call the plurality of leaders in the local church that are, that are set apart and ordained. But they should be always training, equipping, and discipling more shepherds because there should, can only be as many sheep as you have shepherds, I, I had uh, someone ask me this week, well, why is it that we have, oh, 35 people and so forth? Well, because frankly, we need more shepherds. And what I'm focused on, I am focused on the church growing, but I'm really focused on developing the people we have into shepherds and teachers. We have got to break the model where when you, when you think about being a member of a church, you are thinking about attending a meeting on Sundays whereby you get entertained, you're a spectator or a consumer of, good, of a good worship band, a good light show, good sound equipment, and an excellent speech. And then you go home to do little to nothing about the kingdom of God in the rest of your life, and whatever efforts you have in terms of service and ministry are pretty much disjointed from your local church. They're just, I go to, well, I like the, these people, this parachurch ministry that has this burden over here, and I like this parachurch burden. None of that's biblical. and None of that's going to change the world in the long run. The reason God stressed in Exodus 25, etc., the reason he stressed to Moses, to David, to, to Solomon, see to it that you build everything according to the pattern is because if you really go back and study the apostolic pattern, they planted churches that lasted for hundreds of years and grew to conquer the Roman Empire. We are in a very similar cultural situation uh, to the first 500 years of Christianity 
if you really study Roman, the Roman culture, it wasn't just uh, humanistic. We, we, most of us know that. Most of us know that it was statist. Uh, most of it, the, the emperor worship, the welfare system, the big gaps between the rich and the poor, the inflation of currencies, all the immoral situations that we have now. We, it was all that, and it, but it was more. It was really the first postmoderns. If you really study the philosophies and theories thereof, and the church in the church infiltrated that culture in such a way that it conquered it in four or five centuries. Now, any honest assessment of Christianity in America would have to say, since the Great Awakening, we've been losing ground. And what you know, just so you understand, the the burden I have for Grace Christian Fellowship is to build a New Testament model that can be duplicated and duplicated and duplicated, but getting that prototype and that model together is the hard issue. Getting an audience that will take time to really study and listen to what we're saying and, uh, and become disciples. That's the hard part. And God will do it. Okay, so a shepherd, uh, again... Uh, is primarily the ministry function, not so much the office, but uh, the elders, which is the office, are always shepherds the pa- and their pastors and their teachers. Now, some people, by the way, don't call it the fivefold ministry. Some people think pastors and teachers are one and the same, by the way, and that's certainly worth considering since they there's a great deal of overlap. Uh the, the qualifications for shepherds are character, lifestyle, and being able to teach. They're listed in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1, 5 through 9. When the elders of a church train shepherds and release more shepherds, such as home group leaders and, a, and small group leaders and so forth, even though they might not be ordaining them as elders, they should, they should be pressing toward the same character qualities and the same level of teachability and, te- and able to teach as, as elders have. So 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 5 through 9 apply. Shepherds are mostly local ministry. And again, uh, if you have a church of 100 people, you should probably have about 15 shepherds. And you probably have another 15 in training. Hebrews 13, 7. Uh, 17 and 24, I have listed on your outline from last week. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct or their way of life. I use the New King James. The New American Standard says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith or their faithfulness. Uh, verse 17, a verse, you know, I've never heard anybody teach on these verses <laughs> ever. I've only been a Christian 39 years, though, so there's still hope. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. I mean, who would who would say that in an American church today? Uh, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Greet all those who rule over you and greet all the saints. Wow. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, he talks about, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Interestingly, every apostle is a person who has the gift of helps, the gifts of administrations, and they're a shepherd, teacher, and evangelist. 
not all apostles are prophets, but all apostles are the are all of the others, and they're they're first and foremost a deacon and an elder before they're translo before their translocal ministry, and that's what you know Peter is saying. He says, I, I as an elder exhort the fellow, fellow elders to shepherd the flock of God among you. All right, so let's get over to, uh, moving along, let's get over to today's outline. Should have one that says, everyone has one that says chapter 8 on the top, I hope. And we will look at the word evangelist. Now, evangelist is the New Testament word euangelist. It's used three times in the New Testament, and it's used in two contexts or two different ways. Boy, it's hot up here. Am I the only one that's hot? Probably. Um, so, uh, again, we want to, we, you know, as we study these things, I, we don't need to say, okay, so-and-so doesn't have, who's called the so-and-so evangelistic association or whatever, doesn't have all the New Testament qualifications of an evangelist, so let's not, let's go on some crusade to say they're not an evangelist. That is not where we're coming from. That is too, that's unnecessarily arrogant and divisive and, and doesn't need, need to be our function. Our function, our, our purpose here is to discover the New Testament patterns for all of these things so that we can do them in a New Testament church and build a New Testament style community. Okay. Now, uh, again, the definition of an evangelist, euangelistes, uh, is an announcer, a herder, a herald, or a proclaimer of the glad tidings or good news. Now, the only person called a, a euangelistes, an evangelist, in the New Testament is Philip. You may remember that Philip was one of the seven. John did a teaching on Acts chapter 6 and the setting apart of the seven that included Stephen and Philip. Many people believe that was the beginning of the ministry of a deacon in the church. And Paul says those who serve well as deacons attain a, uh, attain a great standing in the faith, if, he, if you trace it all the way through the New Testament, people who are, who are gifts of helps, gifts of administration, people who are deacons, uh, go on to be shepherds, teachers, and evangelists, and in some cases, apostles. That's the reason I'm teaching these in the order that I am. They're really kind of the order we should experience them in. Now, the Philip model... Um, requires looking at Acts chapter 8. Uh, hopefully you're familiar with these. Anyone who I've taken through our, our four chapter teachings on the Holy Spirit has, has looked at, at, at Acts chapter 8 in some detail. But what happens in Acts chapter 8 is after the stoning of Stephen, a uh, great persecution arises against the New Testament church. And so... Uh, the every uh, the people are scattered, and they go running for their lives. With this, and Philip, basically, when he gets to Samaria, about a two days journey from Jerusalem, basically uh, reasons in his mind, I got a good lead on these guys, and begins to proclaim the gospel to the Samaritans. Uh, Samaritans, I should say, not Samaritans. <laughs> uh, they were long gone by then. The Samaritans were still around, though. 
And so in verse 4, it says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, Philip among them. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. That phrase is an interesting phrase because Samaria is really a region, but there was kind of a main city in there. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out, shouting with a loud voice, and many of those who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a certain man named Simon, uh, we can probably skip him, who basically had wrong motives and so forth, and, and uh, well, we probably should just read, uh, who practiced magic, he, uh, he was claiming to be someone great, that's always... Uh, that's one of the things that scares me so much about the whole TV Christianity in our culture today is so much of this relating to the ministry gifts is about building a name for yourself and so forth, which is, you know, why God judged Babel. And um, so he was claiming to be someone great. That's not a good place to be at right there. And they all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him, and he was astonishing them with his magic arts. But when he believed Philip, pre- proclaiming, heralding, announcing the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and alike, men and women alike, and even Simon believed and was baptized. Now we'll stop there for a minute, and we'll talk about these aspects of of what a New Testament evangelist is. A New Testament evangelist. Uh, is a person who pro- is a proclaimer of Christ and the kingdom of God, not necessarily a proclaimer of the gospel that has developed since the the, evan- the uh, fundamentalist modernist con- controversy that that has developed since the Civil War. That gospel is not uh, adequate enough. Okay, you know if you remember when John did some things in the Book of Acts, he talked about some of the aspects of the New Testament gospel we need to restore. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go here today. But the the gospel of the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God, if you look at the eight sermons that were preached about that in the book of Acts, they always had many, many references to Old Testament scriptures. They showed how Christ was the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was foreshadowing and prophesying, that was part, you can't just reduce it to some four spiritual principles or any of that nonsense. It, you have to have the old covenant scriptures in it. The reason being is because Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my congregation. The Septuagint version uh, uses the word congregation in regard to the community of believers that Moses built. And Jesus is, Matthew is all about God's covenant lawsuit Jesus is the final prophet saying the kingdom is going to be taken away from you and it's going to be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And I'm going to end that congregation and I'm going to start my congregation. And the New Testament gospel includes joining the congregation of God. If it doesn't, you didn't receive Christ if you didn't receive his church. You cannot get saved in some isolationist sense that you're going to that you're going to stay home and be alone with God the rest of your life. If you don't come under the, the, the lifestyle that the New Testament had where they ate their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, where they went from house to house, they met in large group, 
in the temple and they met in small group from house to house. They had an hour of prayer. They, they, were, they, had, uh, they had all these leadership functions within the community and people came into Christ by coming into a community. That's all part of the good news. The word saved, so, so uh, soteriology uh, that, we, uh, we'll, that you'll be studying in part five of the systematic theology class for those who are taking it, uh, now, uh, includes deliverance from darkness, healing, uh, release from all evil, and it includes being transferred out of a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, which includes his family. Now, we live in a time when the church is very subbiblical and it's very broken. But you can't say, because it's subbiblical and broken, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines and not participate in the local church. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we've passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. If you're not loving the brethren somewhere, it's quite questionable whether you've passed out of death and into life. The non-church movement is a result of the modern gospel, but it's not at it, it all a result of the biblical gospel. So Philip, interestingly enough, has proclaims the gospel of Christ and his kingdom. There are healings, there are casting out of demons, there are deliverances, and there are water ba- baptisms. But then picking it up at verse 14... It says, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And then we'll not deal with Simon right now, but you could read all the way uh, to verse 20 if you want, uh, and so and so forth. Now... Why did Philip not follow the model that Ananias follows in chapter 9, that uh, Peter and the apostles follow in chapter 10, that Paul follows in chapter 19? Do you think that Philip casting out demons and healing didn't have enough anointing to pray for them to get baptized in the Holy Spirit? I don't think that was the case at all. I think Philip had a certain amount of biblical understanding and wisdom, and he understood that there was a great deal of animosity between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. The Jewish people, uh, going back to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, had seen the Samaritans as people who had, uh, the Samaritans, as I keep saying Samaritans, a whole different situation, uh, 2,000 years earlier, 3,000. Um, the Samaritans uh, were seen as kind of compromisers because when after the Babylonian captivity, the northern kingdom in 722, the southern kingdom in 586, and the dispersion of the Jews among the nations, only a small percentage came back with Ezra and Nehemiah. Most theologians think about 20,000 based on archaeological evidence and so forth. And so um, many intermarried with the cultures around them and so forth. They produced the Samaritans. The Jews looked at them as like not faithful to God because they weren't biologically uh, faithful. But Jesus made it clear in John 8, as Paul did in Romans 4, that it was always those who God gave faith 
who were the heirs of the descendants of Abraham and the true sons and daughters of God. Now, Philip understands this, and, that's, and so do many of the other New Testament Christians. That's why when they were scattered, they started preaching in the cities of Samaria. But they also understood that not everybody was going to understand that. Now, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, By one spirit we were all baptized into one body. I personally believe that Philip waited. Uh, it's about a two days journey to, to, uh, to Jerusalem from, from Samaria, the city of the Samaritans. And uh, so there, Peter and John arrived probably around four or five to seven days after this little revival began. And it says clearly the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. I believe it's because they understood, just like what we're, we, we're not going to get into Acts 10, but in Acts 10, when the Holy Spirit falls on them and they hear them speaking in tongues and exalting God, they say, can anyone refuse the water for these to be baptized who have been baptized in the Spirit in just the same pattern as we did? In exactly the same manner. The Greek means exactly the same model. So... Uh, what they're understanding is this is the way the water baptism, baptism in the Holy Spirit in the New Testament was two halves of the one baptism into Christ and into his community that he was building. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And believe it or not, I still believe that Christ will someday have one community. Uh, I probably won't live to see that day, nor will you, but it will probably it will happen. He prayed for it in John 17. So um, in terms of the Philip model, I, I personally believe this. Um, an evangelist normally is, in, is concerned with making sure that the, that the people who are receiving Christ are also being baptized into Christ and being grafted into the lifestyle of a New Testament church. And I think in Acts chapter 8, waiting for Peter and John to come and pray for the Holy Spirit to fall on them was the best way of making that happen. Obviously, Philip is casting out demons and healing the sick. He's not lacking an anointing of the Holy Spirit. He, in fact, has wisdom from the Holy Spirit to make sure they get grafted into the New Testament model. And by the way... Uh, we, if anybody has trouble with that, we could talk more. That's all the time I have for it. But I base that thinking on a lot more than just uh, a few verses. So flipping over, the second way or the second uh, aspect of, of the New Testament church evangelist goes beyond the, what you would call the Philip model, but it is something that Philip is doing if you read... Uh, uh, Acts 21.8, where it says, On the next day he, we left to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. So by that time, Philip had settled down in a local church. And I, here's what I think that evangelists do, according to Ephesians 4.11, the second context in which the word is used. An evangelist equips the local church to do the work of evangelism. But in a biblical sense not in American cultural Christianity sense. Number one, evangelists heighten the evangelistic consciousness and burden of the local body. 
The truth of the matter is, a part of what an evangelist helps us understand is the people around you are perishing. There is tremendous pressure. If you really analyze the church in our day, the church in our day has a lot of emphasis on shepherds and teachers and professional pastors and so forth, and almost all of the efforts of the actual church are go into maintaining the buildings and the programs of the church. And most Christian, the problem that you'll find when it comes to things like discipling, most churches don't disciple, but you always find a few people in any little church that disciple a few people because you can't take the DNA of what God put in you in Christ completely out of the church, no matter what your what kind of state Christianity is in in our culture. So you always find a few people who disciple a few people. And you're always going to find some people who really have an evangelistic burden. The problem is, is that most people who have an evangelistic burden are putting their efforts into parachurch structures. Because parachurch groups are the only ones who are actually reaching the international students and, and so forth. And most people can't see, i got to throw my efforts into the local church so it gets, it gets the finances and the leadership team and the growth and everything it needs to have the ministries it's supposed to have. Now, there are some kinds of ministries that could never be done apart from a parachurch, like what uh, Lisa Trimbach and Emily are involved in, a crisis pregnancy center. But most ministries would be much more effective if they became part of a local church and not a parachurch. Even campus ministries, most, most campus ministries I meet, when I meet the people who are in a campus ministry three, four, and five years after they've left college, they're usually in trouble spiritually because they knew how to experience community and discipling and New Testament lifestyle on the campus, but they don't know how to do that in, out, out, outside of the campus. So, really, we've got to bring, you know, an, a, a real evangelist heightens the evangelistic consciousness and the burden of the local body to do it as a team through the local church. And until you see that, you'll never really bear a lot of fruit that remains. You know, I was having a discussion with a, some campus ministry guys who do a, that, that do a form of discipleship that goes beyond informational discipleship and, for, and includes formational and impartational. But they have two to three years with people. We are living in a time where everything is broken. Most of the really mature Christians who went to Christian high schools and Christian colleges and so forth we normally have experiencing them starting to become a fairly mature disciple and fairly stable after we've discipled them four or five or six years. People who are coming out of a context where they're really broken, it's more like seven or 10 years. So if we have a discipleship system that where we have a two or three year crack at them, that's not going to change the world. And it, going for anything else but, uh, but having people say, these people who've turned the whole world upside down have come here also, is not what I want to go for. I'd encourage you to study these things out. I really would encourage you. This comes out of 39 years of studying what we need to do to have American Christianity quit losing ground.
We've been losing ground very steadily since the Great Awakening, and it really picked up a lot after the 1890s to 1920s when all the new modernistic ideas swept evangelicalism and so forth. And the, the purpose of any outpouring of the Holy Spirit is to lead us and guide us into all the truth. So, um, secondly, New Testament evangelists teach so as to restore all of the elements of the gospel of the kingdom, which includes proclamation of, of, of a full message, which we can't get, we've touched on what that is at times, and embodiment of that message in a lifestyle of people. Until You know, one of the things I always talk about in terms of why we're building interracially and so forth is um, American Christianity is, Americans are never going to take the church seriously as long as Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. It just won't happen. Jesus said, they'll know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. If Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, the world is going to say, this, what you're doing is a game. It's nonsense. You're not serious about it. It's certainly not the answer for every, all of life. New Testament evangelists increase the effectiveness, numbers, and degrees of conversions. Think about those words. One of the things we're up against today is most people in a, who uh, have been around evangelical churches for most of their life uh, are, are really what, what would be more accurate to call pre-evangelized in most cases. Conversion should be an effective thing. It should radically change your life. It should set you free from iniquity, from habits of sin. It should cause you to have a great hunger to know God's word. It could, could, should cause you to be thirsty for his spirit and desirous of changing, to be conformed into his image, to be, to, to be, to be part of his team. Now, New Testament evangelists are not apostles, but like Philip, they work under and in conjunction with apostles, shepherds, and teachers. By the time we see Philip in Acts 21, he settled down in one place. That doesn't necessarily mean he always ministered in that one place. But um, let's, boy, we're running out of time, so let's move on. Prophets, prophetes, means technically to speak forth, to speak on behalf of another, in the New Testament, it, it's used approximately seven ways. One verse in Titus 1.12 uses it of the Cretans, epi, a poet, a poet uh, named Epimenides. Uh, it's used of John the Baptist. It's used of prophets in general in Matthew 10.41 and Mark 6.4. Jesus talking about how a prophet is not welcome in his hometown and so forth and, and the rewards of prophets and so forth. Um, it's used of the writing of the Old Testament prophets. I gave you some of my favorite references in that connection in Hebrews 1, James 5, and 1 Peter 1.10. Uh, it's used of Christ in Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, out of, because of Matthew's target audience, Jesus is not called a prophet in the book of Matthew. However, in Matthew, Jesus t confronts the Pharisees with the... With the um, the story of, of how there were, God had a, uh, had a vineyard and planted a vineyard and, 
And he sent one servant after another to the vineyard, and they killed one and, and so forth. And he said, all the blood of, of all the prophets will come on this generation because you're going to kill me too, basically. Okay, so uh, even though Jesus is not specifically called a prophet, it's, it's strongly implied. And in fact, he, he functions as a prophet more in Matthew than any of the other gospels, uh, making his covenant lawsuit against Israel. Uh, if you need more understanding on that, read a good book on, on what's called the Olivet Discourse, like R.C. Sproul's uh, book called The Last Days According to Jesus, or uh, Paradise Restored, which is one of our foundational books. Uh, it's used of, of prophets as ministry gift and offices in the church, and that it's used lastly of the two witnesses in Revelation. Um, pro- the word prophecy is also used in Romans 12 of motivational gifts and used in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 of charismatic or spiritual gifts. But what we want to focus on is in regard to the New Testament use of prophets as ministry gifts and offices in the church. So uh, generally in that respect, it, it would be could be defined this way. One who regularly speaks under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and attains to a consistent level of maturity in doing so and therefore a degree of recognition in the ministry gift of prophecy, and, and then often even goes beyond that to the office of a prophet. Someone, uh, like it says of, of Philip's daughters, that he had four daughters who did prophesy, that it was clear that they prophesied regularly, they had enough boldness to prophesy to Paul. That might be a little intimidating. Uh, but uh, they uh, not, didn't necessarily have the office of a prophet, as Agabus is called, someone who has the office of a prophet. Um, so there's definitely levels of prophetic ministry. Um, the sons of the prophets in the Old Testament are precursors of the New Testament ministry of a prophet. Uh, where, um, And it's interesting, after Samuel prays for Saul, remember he tells him that you're going to meet and encounter a group of prophets, and when he does... They pray for him, and it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and was changed into a different man, and that he did, and he prophesied so that they said, "Is even Saul among the sons of the prophets?" And uh, interestingly, if you read the those chapters in First Chronicles carefully, and they're also in First Kings, um, one of the things you'll see is that Saul made several very wise decisions over the next uh, few chapters, which probably covered a few years before he started in his downward spiral. Amazingly wise decisions, wise decisions that go beyond human wisdom. So that's kind of interesting. So uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 32 says, let two or three prophets speak and then let the others pass judgments. 1 Corinthians 14 has to do with how to, uh, how to function in the spiritual gifts in a meeting where like Friday nights where, where we have spiritual gifts flowing. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. In other words, don't be rude and interrupt each other and all that, for you can all prophesy one by one. That, that's actually saying every person could prophesy in, uh, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Now, prophets in the New Testament are both local and translocal. I wish I had t- time to develop that more. Uh, but we don't, We're because I'm running right down. The, I really want to get through apostles today and end this part. I wish I had uh, moved along quicker. Apostles, you know, the, the, the New Testament evangelist thing really burdens me quite a bit. Um, 
Apostles are literally means one who's sent. In the New Testament, it's a delegate, an ambassador of the kingdom, the kingdom community, and the kingdom gospel message. Uh, he's sent with orders, announcements, and a blueprint. Now, it's used of three different groups of people in the New Testament. Very important to understand, and they're not all the same. Firstly, it's used of the original 12. They are apostles in a sense that, in a type of sense that no one else, when you when you read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, he'll say there are not apostles today because, frankly, he's looking at that. In, in, the, in the sense that the 12 were, they were a special kind of apostles that has not been duplicated and never will be again. However, it's also used of Paul. And then finally, it's used of a number of other people. Barnabas, Timothy, and Silvanus are included. And I threw in Junia because she's called a... Uh, it says that she is also among the apostles in Romans 16 I, uh, with the whole, you know, as you know, we are complementarian, not egalitarians in that, in, the, in that whole debate. However, that's just, just a very interesting verse that, uh, that Paul calls uh, a lady named Junia as being among the apostles. Uh, the, the, the other, the, the, the apostles other than the original 12, Paul and the other types of apostles are based on the Antioch model. That's very important to understand. If you understand the Mount Olivet Discord, Jesus had prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem, which was fulfilled to the T in 67 through 70 AD. Okay. Um, we know for sure by documents of church history that in 67 AD, all the Christians left Jerusalem and Judea. None of them, none of the Christians were destroyed by the Roman armies. Okay, so now that what it's important is that in Acts 13, it tells us there were prophets and teachers in Antioch, and it lists five guys. And then it says, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, must have said through prophesying through one of those five, set apart Barnabas and Paul to the work I have called them. Someone who's called to be an apostle will have a sense for a long time that they're called to be apostle, and they're supposed to serve and be nurtured and be raised up in a local church until they're shepherds and teachers and evangelists in that local church. All apostles are shepherds, teachers, and evangelists. And they're sent. What you see in the New Testament is that the, the rest of the New Testament churches are built on the Antioch model that Paul and Barnabas planned. Now, you might know that Paul and Barnabas split up before their second journey on whether they... John Mark was ready to be restored or not. And it says that Paul was commended by the brothers to the grace of God. And thereafter, the Holy Spirit only through Luke follows Paul, not Barnabas. And we actually know from church history that Barnabas planted many churches. Most people say more than Paul probably, but the Holy Spirit didn't choose to focus on his model. So here are quickly, and we'll end with this. I got just, I'm just going to have to read them, and you're going to have to, we'll have to think more about them. I'm going to be teaching on some of these things next year anyway. So um, apostles are sent by the Holy Spirit. They're confirmed by prophetic leadership in the, in the local church, and they take the pattern of the local church and, and multiply it. That's very, very important. 
an apostle needs to, he's like a general contractor. He needs to understand everything about the blueprints, the building materials, and how to go about building a New Testament church. Apostles evangelize, they plant churches, and assisted by the Holy Spirit, they assist the Holy Spirit in leadership, reproduction, and development. See Titus. Titus is not a... Uh, is not one of the original 12, but he's part of, of Paul's apostolic team. And they had actually gone through the island of Crete and evangelized and started groups of Christians all through the island and every city on the island. And, and Titus, Paul is telling Titus what to do to, to form all those, those churches in Crete into New Testament churches, including develop leaders and appoint and ordain elders and, and tell the people to engage in good works, which I heard we're going to hear a little bit about that later today, and uh, so forth. Apostles are team builders. They always traveled in teams. So there was an apostolic figurehead, just like there's a, a, a senior or or presiding elder or presbyter or senior minister, uh, but they weren't operating in, in a vacuum by themselves as renegades. Silas, Luke, Timothy are all, there's, I once counted around 30 people in the New Testament who are part of Paul's team in various ways. Uh, apostles have signs and wonders that accompany their ministry. Paul says when he's defending his ministry to the Corinthians who are basically saying, hey, Paul's not the real deal, even though he had planted the church. The whole, the whole letter of 2 Corinthians is Paul defending his ministry to the Corinthians and saying, hey, really, I am really part of the real deal. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really an apostle. I'm really not as bad a guy as you think. <laughs> Gives you kind of comfort for modern Christianity, doesn't it? Like, the great apostle Paul is trying to tell the most immature church in the New Testament, really, I'm, your perspective's off a little bit here. And he's defending his ministry. And then one of the ways he defends is he says, aren't the signs of a true apostle? Apostles always have signs and wonders and miracles in their ministry. Uh, apostles carry a significant measure of faith imparted from Christ that was imparted to them at their calling. And the apostles have biblical blueprints for building model New Testament churches. We've already talked a little bit about the Antioch factor. So... Um, that's, uh, unfortunately, you know, the way I allocated my time, I probably didn't give adequate time to the apostles and, but we gave very good amount of time to the evangelists and at least hopefully it gets you starting to think, uh, what we really need to do is understand that, um, like in first Corinthians or first Chronicles, uh, the Ark of God, which is a foreshadowing and a type of the church, is sent back by the Philistines on a cart, remember? And you know what? The Israelites, not knowing their scriptures as thoroughly as they should and not understanding the, the, the history of, the, of, the, of Moses' church, said, wow, that's a great idea. And so they decided to bring the, the Ark of God up on a cart to Jerusalem, remember? And the results were that it couldn't carry the glory of God. And it nearly toppled, and Uzzah stretched out his hands to save God. And, and it was so presumptuous that God killed him. And David left the cart at Obed-Edom's house because he said, whoa, he feared God. And he said, and what he did, if you look at, at two, three chapters later, chapter 15, 
when he, uh, when he did finally move the cart to Jerusalem, he had gone back and studied the scriptures and understood, oh, it was never supposed to be on a cart. It was, there was a prescribed way to carry the glory of God. You know, my burden is that there's a prescribed way to do the New Testament church, and it's not just a minor matter. It's worth digging deep, it's worth rediscovering, and it's worth rebuilding. New wine has to be in new wineskins. And we, we have to build the kind of structure that can handle the glory of God. Amen.